appreciate it for those who would like it. There was a new evangelical preacher, one who welcomes modern music and services, accepts a lot of what's taking place uh, in our world today, but he brought out a concern that he had, and it's kind of interesting to read it because uh, I would agree with his concern. He said this, Christianity claims a unique place among world's religions. Our faith tells us of a God before whom the strongest saints took off their shoes, bowed down, fell on their faces, repented in dust and ashes. At the same time, it tells of a God who came to earth as a baby, who showed tender mercies to children and the weak, who taught us to call him Abba, who loved and was loved. God is both transcendent and imminent, the theologians say. God inspires at once awe and love, fear and friendship. To most moderns, however, a sense of awe comes with the greatest difficulty. We have domesticated angels into stuffed toys and Christmas ornaments. We've made cartoons of St. Peter at the gate of heaven. We've tamed the phenomenon of Easter with bunny rabbits. <coughs> and, and, <coughs> sorry, and Easter egg hunts. <coughs> and substituted for the awe of shepherds and wise men, cute elves and a jolly man dressed in red. Almighty God gets nicknames now, like the big guy or the man upstairs. An article in the February 2005 issue of Christianity Today addressed one of my pet peeves, he went on. How did it happen that the word worship has become synonymous with music? For several months, my church went on a hunt for a worship pastor, and we had a parade of candidates <clears throat> who auditioned with their guitars and backup groups. Some of them prayed, yes, Lord, just, you know, really be here tonight with us. Just let us know you're here. But none of those men showed much knowledge of theology, and assuredly none of us, none led us toward anything like awe of God. Worship today means loudly filling every space of silence in the church. He continued his article about this issue, making a statement that both revealed, I want to say, the ignorance of what he spoke of and the great understanding of what he spoke of. Because here's how he put it. I welcome the sense of celebration and joy apparent in much recent music, which shows his ignorance. Then he said, yet I wonder what we are missing when we seek to reduce the distance between creature and creator. You know, he was right about worship. We call Sunday morning services worship services in most places. In modern churches, they have worship leaders who get people worked up to hear a 15-minute sermonette. Quite frankly, in many cases, worship is not done. I would say definitely not in the modern church, but sadly, I would even say even in churches like ours. In fact, in reading through articles about worship, I was amazed at how many define or describe worship in a way that it's not defined or described in Scripture at all. Worship literally means to depress, to prostrate oneself in homage to royalty or God. It has absolutely nothing to do with music. In reference to God, 
worship is when a person or people have a sense of awe and wonder of him at who he is, and they prostrate themselves before him in abject humility. It may take place physically, but it must take place at least in the heart, or worship does not happen. So a worship service may indeed not be a worship service at all, depending upon the people who are in it and their response to God. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 8, we find worship taking place, a worship service. And yet there were no crowds. It was a worship service of one, one man alone. No music, as far as we know. The preacher, you'll like this, spoke for about 30 seconds. And he didn't need to say anything else. And worship happened. It's profound. All God did, taking about 30 seconds, at least in my own personal, just reading it through, all God did was introduce himself. And Moses worshiped. So I tell you, he had a great worship service in Exodus chapter 34. And I, I, as much as I hate to admit it, it didn't take a long message. It just took a person to realize who he served and to come to God and bow, bow before him and say, God, you are God. I asked you the question last week, how would you introduce God to someone? As a pastor, I have the task of introducing speakers, and you know that I really don't enjoy that. It's not because I hate introducing people, but I, I guess I don't really enjoy it all that much because most of my life, even in the churches I've been in, when people introduce speakers, I've often felt like they say far more about the person than they should. You know, I've come away even in churches sometimes saying, is that guy really that good? You know, is he really that amazing? As someone gushes about all the accomplishments they have and everything else and why you should listen to him. And my opinion is if, if, um, if a man is a godly man and he preaches the Bible, you should listen to him because he's preaching God's word. I, I don't care whether he's got 18 degrees after his name and, and, uh, and he's really impressive and a great speaker. If he speaks for God and he speaks of God and he tells us what God has said, we ought to listen to him carefully no matter what no matter what great ability he has or what great a person he is. And so I don't really like to do that. But I thought about, and I've really thought a lot about how would I introduce God if he were going to speak at our church. Now, unlike all men who might preach here or any other place, God would be worthy of anything I could say in the introduction of him. In fact, he'd be worthy of far more than I could say an introduction of him. And quite frankly, I'm glad I'm not the one that has to introduce him. <clears throat> Although I do introduce him to you pretty much every week in every service. <clears throat> in Exodus, Exodus 34, God introduces himself to an audience of one. And it is, indeed, as the outline says, a meeting with God. Because that is exactly... Hey, thank you very much. It is exactly 
what it is. Moses is called up to the mount one last time to receive the commandments a second time because he broke the first ones that God had written with his own finger. There's a reason he broke them. Why? All right, he was angry. Was it wrong anger? It was absolutely right. He should have been angered. I don't know if he should have broke them because God said it right at the beginning, Moses hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and I'm going to write upon those the words of the ones that you already broke the first time. So I'm not sure whether he was rebuking them or not, but do you see that in the first verse at the start of the chapter? It's kind of like, okay, did Moses blow it or not? I don't know. We can't prove it either way. But in the, at, right at the start of this, we get a picture of God. In fact, I put it this way in the outline. God's evidence is evidenced. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, God's eminence is evidenced. Now, you got to know what eminence is. You don't even know how to spell it, do you? That's right. Thankfully, there's spell check. E-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. E-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. God's eminence is evidence. Now, now, since I had to spell it, let me also tell you what it means. Eminence means a position of prominence or superiority. It means to be lofty. It needs to be a person of high rank or attainments. And that is a picture of God, isn't it? And that is the kind of picture we get right at the start of this chapter. Because God doesn't come to Moses to say, hey, Moses, we need to have a meeting. He doesn't say, Moses, we need to have a talk, and it would be nice if you'd come on up. No, here's God. He meets with Moses, and he says, all right, Moses, here's what I want you to do. You broke the two uh, tablets that I already gave you with, with my handwriting on it. Uh, so since you broke it, get, get a couple more and bring them up. And I'm going to do the same. I'm going to do it again. And God just, in, in fact, in verses 1 to 4, we see God's authority seen. His authority is clearly seen. So it's not God coming and saying, Moses, let's, let, we're just good buddies here. Let's have a meeting. It's God saying, all right, hew out two tablets of stone like unto the first. I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount, and no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tablets of stone like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning, and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. Now, that's not impressive in the sense that we're reading it and saying, Wow, but I tell you what is impressive is God is saying, look, I am God, and here's what I expect of you. And I love the way Moses responds to that. You are God, and you have the right to tell me what to do, and you have to, the right to tell me exactly how to do it. I, I need to get these stones. I need to get them ready by tomorrow, and I need to go up tomorrow first thing, and I need to meet with you because you are God. And I'll tell you that understanding God's eminence really begins with a Christian understanding God is the authority, and he is not one to be taken lightly. He is not one to be considered as, as if, well, you know what, if, if God says that, that's okay, but I'm not really sure it's going to work, so I'm not sure I'm going to do it. My attitude needs to be like Moses. In fact, true worship really does start with someone understanding. I have an authority in my life. I am not the authority. I'm not the one in charge. God is. And God has the right to do as he would choose and to tell me what to do. And it's like God speaks 
and Moses listens. And that is what our attitude needs to be. I, I did put it this way. We, should say, we could say that worship doesn't start before one surrenders to God in the first place, understanding that God has the right to tell me what to do because he is God. Now, we just read the first four verses, but in verse 5, we, his awesomeness is seen. So not only is his authority seen in verses 1 to 4, but his awesomeness is seen. I didn't know how else to put it, and I had to follow the alliteration. You know, God is just awesome in this passage. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I'll tell you, Exodus chapter 34, originally, uh, my, my thought was, I said, you know, we've already dealt with this. We've already gone, kind of gone through the law. This was all part of it. This was part of those chapters that we've talked about. But the more I read chapter 34, the more I realized this is a, a vision and a picture that we need to get in our mind. And it's an awesome one about God. So here is God says, all right, Moses, here's what you need to do. Do this, this, this. I need to meet you here. And, and understand this. There's no one supposed to come with you. You're supposed to be alone. And you're not even supposed to let the animals feed near the mountain. Okay? This is serious stuff. This is what I expect. Moses totally obeys that. And after Moses has obeyed that, what happens? Well, God comes down and meets with him. He descends in the cloud, and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So his awesomeness is, is seen. He doesn't just exercise his authority by uh, ordering Moses to do a number of different things. By the way, he orders Moses back into the mount. And I just, I, I, I've really been wondering about this. Moses spent how many days in the mount in the beginning? What did he do when he pled with the children of Israel and asked God to forgive them? Another 40 days. You know, we read it at the end, later in this chapter, or later about this, Moses spent another 40 days. And each one of those 40 days, he did not, did not eat or drink. You say, an impossibility. Only if, only if you don't know God. So, so, so this guy, people say, well, you, you can't make it 40 days without food and water. You can if God takes care of it. In fact, you can make it 80 days without food and water. In fact, you can make it 120 days without food and water. For the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, this was a very unique situation, but it, it amazed me to think about how this is now coming on. We're, we're talking about 120 days. That's a long time. Four months. What a diet program. Oh, I guess it wasn't really, really. <laughs> I, I could probably afford to do something like that. But God's awesomeness is, is seen in, in, in the sense that he, he not only gave the requirements, but that he met the needs of a man who could not have possibly survived without God doing something miraculous. Think about that. So this is a this is a mirac again a miraculous meeting once again with God, and it is clear in the text that God did not descend until what? Until Moses had done everything God said. Um, when Moses did what God commanded. Because it says, he hewed two tables of stone, verse 4, like unto the first. 
Moses rose up early in the morning, went up into Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand the two tables of stone, and that's when the Lord descended into the cloud. And I, and I will tell you, it just reminds us again that we serve an awesome God, a God who's, who, who expects, who demands obedience. And if we want to meet with God and we want God to meet with us, then we are going to need to be people who completely obey what he says. Now, the third point we have, and this is where we're going to get hung up. I, I just, you just can't, you can't get past verses 6 and 7. His attributes are revealed. It says he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So once all the requirements are met, God descends on the mount, stands with Moses. Now that's awesome in itself. But notice what, hap- what happens when he comes. What does the Lord do? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. What does that mean? One writer, one commentator said this, what Moses saw, we are not told. And that's good. You know why? Because if Moses described the picture he saw, you know what people would do? they make an idol. And they'd start worshiping that as God. And so we have no description of what Moses saw. It had to be awesome. They already had an awesome meeting when he was with the, the 70 who were allowed to see God, and, and it seems like they had a vision of heaven. Um, but here, we have no description. And he went on, he said, uh, simply the words in which Jehovah proclaimed all the glory of his being. Whilst it is recorded of Moses that he bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This sermon on the name of the Lord, as Martin Luther used to call it, disclosed to Moses the most hidden nature of Jehovah. It proclaimed that God is love, but that the kind of love that acts in mercy, grace, long-suffering, goodness, and truth, but it's also united with holiness and justice. So when God introduced himself, those are the things he brought out. How does God want to be known? How does God deserve to be known? Godly men would come to the conclusion that of, of God here. In fact, it's interesting to find that David used many of the same terms God uses to describe himself in verses 6 and 7. In Psalm 86, 15, he said, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Many writers talking about God, describe it in the same way. But look, you can't get any better than God himself introducing himself. Moses, let me tell you who I am. So the Lord passed by before him, verse 6, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the, uh, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. And worship happened, and Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. 
and rightfully so. Why did he worship? Because he realized who God is. Hey, listen, if I, if I was to give, if I were to introduce God today, there's no better introduction than here because this is, the, this is the place where God says, this is how I want you to know me. This is who I am. And when Moses realized who God was, and I didn't do it justice to it, when he realized who God was, as he just in that moment heard those, the description of God as God gave it himself, he just fell on his face. I mean, what else can you do? I, I'm doing it injustice. I feel, I feel like I'm totally failing this. This is, this is an amazing thing that takes place here. So how does he describe himself? First thing we find, he starts by using a name. He is the Lord. He is God. The only God. The self-existent God, the eternal God. Did you hear that this morning? Jehovah. That's how he starts. I am Jehovah. It begins here. It's understanding that God is God. All things exist by him, but he needs nothing to exist. That, as, as we said this morning, is just hard to fathom. Look. Every, every person, everything in this world is totally dependent upon its being by someone else. It's actually God. If God didn't exist, these chairs wouldn't exist. If God didn't exist, this world wouldn't exist. If God didn't exist, you wouldn't exist. And that's where you got to start in understanding God. He's Jehovah, the self Existent one. Now, unlike us, unlike the things that we see in the world around us that are totally dependent upon someone, the fact that there is a sun and that the sun doesn't burn up the earth nor is it too far away that it freezes the earth is all because there is a God and the sun is dependent upon that God to exist who keeps it in its place and causes the earth to rotate around it. Because he is God, the one who uh, upon which everything exists and has its being. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that. Jesus is the one upon whom everything is dependent to exist. But God needs no one and nothing to exist. There isn't any puppet behind him pulling the strings. There isn't anyone that is necessary to keep God there because God's there by himself, by his own power, by his own ability. And I told you, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. I, I can't. But if I could explain it, then he wouldn't be all that special, would he? But the very fact that I can't just reminds me that I, I serve an amazingly awesome God. Everyone is dependent upon someone and something, but God isn't. He's totally self-existent. He is the Lord. But he's not only the Lord. Then he says, I, okay, so he proclaims, the Lord, Jehovah. But he doesn't, then he says, he emphasizes Jehovah again. Do you see it? Jehovah, Elohim. Jehovah's strength, the almighty one. All right, so get the picture. I'm the self-existent one. I don't need anyone to exist. I have always existed. 
because I have deemed it to be so. No one made me. There is no other God. And I am the almighty God. I'm the God who has all strength. There is no one like me. There's no one that can do what I can do. There is no one that has the ability that I have. No one. I am the almighty God. I am the all-powerful God. I am the God of all strength, the almighty one. There is nothing beyond my ability. Human beings have weaknesses. We have limitations. But the God that appeared to Moses has none. He is absolutely able to meet the greatest need. All power is his. Someone in in an evangelical church was concerned with the approach many in these circles have taken with God. It's a kind of different, a different person, but somewhat the same idea. It bothered him that God is viewed so lightly. And here's what he wrote. We must be concerned with the person and character of God, not the promises. Through promises, we learn what God has willed to us. We learn what we may claim as our heritage. We learn how we should pray. But faith itself must rest on the character of God. Is that so difficult to see? Why are we not stressing this in our evangelical circles? Why are we afraid to declare that people in our churches must come to know God himself? Why do we not tell them that they must get beyond the point of making God a lifeboat for their rescue or ladder to get them out of a burning building? How can we help our people get over the idea that God exists uh, or God doesn't exist just to help them run their business or fly their airplanes? God is not a railway porter who carries your suitcases and serves you. God is God. He made heaven and earth. He holds the world in his hand. He measures the dust of the earth in the balance. He spreads the sky out like a mantle. He is the great God Almighty. He's not your servant. He is your father, and you are his child. He sits in heaven. You're on earth. And when he ended that and gave a response, he suggested a prayer, and here's what he said. God, I fall on my face before you in worship this morning. Forgive me for those times I have treated you as though you were my servant, somehow expected to meet my demands. I am your servant, Lord, and I humbly bow before you today. That's what happened here. It's, it's, a, um, it's a powerful message, and it was a message preached by God, and, and we just got through the first two things, the Lord, the Lord God. So get this grand picture, the self-existent, eternal God, the always wise, who needs no one to resist. He is, and he always has been. And this God is the almighty God. He's proved that. And he proves it day in and day out by holding everything together. Now, how would you keep going? How could you get any better than that? And what would you say next? Listen to me. At least that's kind of what I would think. Did I wake you up? I'm sorry. But then God said, 
merciful and gracious. He is merciful and gracious. He is merciful and gracious. What do you think? The self-existent, eternal, all-powerful God would want you to know about him. What's, what's the first thing he wants to bring out after he, after he describes himself as, he, as who he is? By using these names. All right, so, so, so what, what would you think? I'm holy. You know, listen to me. I mean, I, I can think a whole bunch of things. But, but then, after giving us this picture of awesome power and might, he says, I am merciful and gracious. I mean, that's not the first aspect of his greatness I would bring out if I were introducing him. Two descriptive titles. He's merciful. He's the one full of tenderness and compassion. He's full of tenderness and compassion. And when you think of tenderness and compassion, what do you think? My, my, in my imagination, I go to a mother who sits by the bed of her child who's maybe deathly ill, and, and, and she just wipes her brow and, and cares for her and, and cries over her and, and hurts for her because she wants her daughter to be better. And she would gladly put herself in her child's place. And, and when the child cries, you know, mom reaches down and holds her near and, and does everything she possibly can to make life at least palatable or more pleasant for this one who's suffering because she just cares. And, and that is the descriptive term that God uses to describe himself. He's, he's merciful. He's full of compassion. And then he's not just full of, of compassion, but he's also full of grace. Now, uh, why did he use the term merciful here? Why didn't he just say I'm full of compassion? Because he uses it in tandem with grace. And when God uses, and when we find in the Bible, the term mercy and grace together, it's because mercy is saying he doesn't give us what we rightfully deserve. And grace, he's giving us something we don't deserve. And it gives us both sides of a very tender and compassionate God. He is willing to, if you would, stay his hand and not punish someone who rightfully deserves it. But on the other hand, there's people who don't deserve things, and God graciously opens his hand to them. And he does both in perfect, in perfect unity with one another and, and in perfect balance all the time because he is both merciful and gracious. So uh, there are times where he doesn't give someone what they rightfully deserve, and there are times when God just pours out his blessing on someone who's undeserving, which is, would be everyone, because that is what God is. He is merciful, and he's gracious. He shows tender compassion. And by the way, when he it shows tender compassion, he shows tender compassion not on his friends but on his enemies, as he did at the cross. See, God's tender compassion wasn't shown to the disciples, his mercy. His mercy was shown to the, to the men who, were, who put him on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's just a God of mercy, and, and he's a God of, of grace, not giving people what they do deserve and, and graciously pouring out blessings on people who are undeserving of it. To be gracious means to bend or stoop to an inferior, and that's what God did. He lowered himself, he lowers himself all the time to show favor because, get this, 
God has to lower himself to show favor to anyone because everyone is below him. Do, do you get the picture? I'm the Lord, but I'm gracious. And I all the time bend and stoop to people who are inferior, and I, I daily load them with benefits. No reason why God should do that. But he does. And then we go on. He's, he's long-suffering. Do you see that? Long-suffering. He's patient. He's slow to anger with men. How much men need God to be patient with them? You know, if, if God dealt with us the way we sometimes dealt with others, we'd be in serious trouble. Adam Clark said this. He explained it. The being who, because of his goodness and tenderness, is not easily irritated but suffers long and is kind. Another writer, Joseph Benson, seconded those words. He said, he is long-suffering, that is, he is slow to anger and delays the executions of his justice. He waits to be gracious and lengthens out the offers of his mercy. That's the way God is. He's long-suffering with us. Now, as I was preparing this, I wondered to myself whether I've extended to bad drivers the same slowness to anger and patience God has extended to me when I've failed him. And the answer is, uh, nope. You know, I can get so irritated with people over one fault, but when you really think about it, um, this week I have a lot of faults in far, as far as God is concerned. And yet God every time I came and asked, has been willing to forgive because he's long-suffering. And he's been patient with me. Um, have, I, have I been, was I patient with the kids like God has been patient with me? Have I been patient with my mate as much as God has been patient with me? Um, God, God is long-suffering. Have you done the same thing over and over? Have you ever had to go to God about the same sin and confess it? Have you ever gone on in sin and done nothing about it? Maybe like David, who for months was involved in a sin with Bathsheba all the way to the, in fact, until, um, until the, the prophet said, thou art, thou art the man. He went on in the sin. But God was patient with him. When God could have just said, David, this is what you did. Here's what you deserve. By the way, our, our, we, we could all learn something about long-suffering from God. He's long-suffering. Look, look at our list. He is, how does verse 6 end? Abundant in what? Goodness and Goodness and truth are found in him. Listen to the words of Psalm 25.10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. All God's paths to those who are obedient to him are paths of mercy and truth. And those two words found there are the same ones found here when God reveals this about himself to Moses. He is abundantly good. Abundantly good. That's what God is like. And not, ju not just good, abundantly good. 
What shall I render unto the Lord? David wrote for all his benefits toward me. He is abundantly good, but he's also abundantly true. What he says he'll do, he's absolutely abundantly trustworthy. I know we, we emphasized this this morning, but it's explained like this. The truth or the true one. He alone who can neither deceive nor be deceived, who is the fountain of truth and from whom all wisdom and knowledge must be derived. You can count on God's word every time. We have hope of eternal life. You know why? Because God cannot lie. He is a God of absolute truth. He always has been an absolute, a God of absolute truth. And so he promised eternal life before the world began. And get this, that promise was made before the world began. Think of how amazing that is. We talked about the fact this morning, God for 2,000 years has been saving anyone who calls upon him. But the truth is, the fact that God saves anyone who calls upon him goes all the way back to the creation of the world some 5,000 or maybe 6,000 years ago. And God's been keeping his promise before the world began that he made. And no one was around to hear it but God. But he told us. And he's always been true to his word. And he always will be true to his word. And that's why I know that he's going to rule this earth with a rod of iron because he said it and he keeps his word. And he's coming again. And he said it and he keeps his word. And he will reward faithfulness to him because God keeps his word. It's an encouragement in a day when you just don't know most of the time if someone's telling the truth to know that there's someone who always tells you the truth. All the time, every time. And may we be like him. I, I don't know about you. We just got through verse 6. Um, there's more to the list. And we're going to jump back into it. Um, but this is God's description of himself. You can't get any better than that. And it is, it is mighty challenging when you take time to really think about it. Look, you serve the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. So let's worship bow before him, follow him, obey him. Exodus 34 is truly a heavy passage. It really is. It's, it's weighty because God describes himself and then God is going to tell us at the end of the chapter what he expects from us. And that's why this chapter is so important and valuable for us. We just, you gotta, you got to get hung up in, and you got to spend some time thinking about who he is. And his description is worthy of the time we've given it tonight. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for describing yourself to Moses and giving us a description in your own words of who you are pray that we would get an understanding of this and it would make a difference in how we live. 
And we wouldn't just say this is who God is, but this is who God is. And he is worthy of all the worship and adoration I could ever give him. And may our hearts just bow in humble adoration today for the God we know and serve, the the God who is our Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you as you serve this great God.